You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We get to search the scriptures today with our friends from The Lutheran Witness. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. As it is time to dig into the Word of God today in searching the scriptures with the uh, the March issue of The Lutheran Witness. Joining us this morning, the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. We are digging in, and I know that uh, we have so much to do in <laughs> the time that we have together. So the March issue of The Lutheran Witness, um, where are we going in searching the scriptures today? So in searching the scriptures, we're picking up the thread of uh, the Apostles' Creed and working through the Apostles' Creed and explaining where we get all of these phrases from and how we're confessing what the Scriptures confess when we uh, when we say what we say in the Apostles' Creed. And so today we're moving into uh, the the part that talks about Jesus' incarnation uh, and and uh, and his why he why he becomes incarnate why he becomes man. So the phrase we're actually working with today is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so this taking on this incarnation, this enfleshment, I love the, I always <laughs> go to the, uh, the Spanish word incarnate, like in meat, in flesh, right? This is God in meat, con carne, right? That's the, you order a dish con carne with meat on it, right? So this is God con carne, God with meat on him. And, uh, and, uh, and then this is also begins uh, the state of his humiliation. This is his willing refraining from using his divine powers. And we're going to talk about why that is as we dig through, uh, dig through this text. That is great. Jesus with meat. I might name this episode that. Uh, so let's, <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> let's dig in to question number one. The incarnation of the Son of God into human flesh should not be a surprise to the people of the New Testament. Read Genesis 3, 14 through 15. What promise does God give to Adam and Eve? So let's dig into that scripture, Pastor. So we'll start with the context here. Adam and Eve have uh, been created by God, and uh, God gave them a command not to eat from a certain tree. Uh, and of course, uh, deceived by Satan, uh, they do precisely that. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and then uh, God goes and talks to them and says, hey, what happened? Um, and then and then God curses, uh, gives these three curses. And the first curse goes to the serpent, actually, which I think is really fascinating that this first promise we're going to talk about here in a minute, but the first promise of the offspring uh, is actually in the middle of the curse against the serpent. Beautiful uh, thing that God does here. Uh, but this this these this verse fourteen and fifteen these verses uh, are actually the curse that God gives to the serpent. Here's what God says to the serpent: uh, because he deceives Adam and Eve, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is, of course, uh, what we call here in this last, uh, this last verse 15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel that God gives to Adam and Eve that uh, in cursing the serpent, there will be one who uh, takes the punishment for what they have done and all humanity has done since then 
that there will come one uh, in the seed of the woman in her offspring that will crush the serpent's head and destroy him. And then we can see it's really fascinating if we go a little bit further down to Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Uh, Eve actually believes that with the birth of Cain, she has actually fulfilled this promise. If we look at uh, Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, Uh, Eve says, I have gotten a man, and then the ESV says, with the help of the Lord. But if you read the original Hebrew, with the help of the Lord actually isn't in there. She actually says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. She believes Mm -hmm. that she has uh, uh, fulfilled this promise that God gave to to Adam and Eve. Um, But uh, as you find out later in that text in in Cain and Abel, that's not actually what happens, right? (laughs) Uh, This fulfillment actually comes in Jesus Christ. Uh, further on uh, in the New Testament. But uh, that's, uh, once again, the idea behind this promise that there will be one who comes in the flesh to fix what Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve broke. So shall we move forward to question two, which takes us into Isaiah? Let's do it. All right. I read Isaiah chapter seven, verses 10 through 17. What sign does God promise to Ahaz? Who is the fulfillment of this sign? So here we have uh, God speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah. Now, Ahaz is the king of Judah, um, and uh, at the time that God gives this passage we're about to read, um, the king of Syria and uh, the king of Israel, the king of uh, the northern kingdom, because we've got two separate kingdoms at this point, have come up against Jerusalem, have come up against uh, King Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem, and they were getting ready to mount a siege against Jerusalem. And at this point, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz, and he says, God speaks through Isaiah. And here's what God says. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord God to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So um, uh, here, this we actually get two, two uh, prophecies that go to Ahaz, or that, that God speaks to Ahaz. Uh, one is uh, this sign of the virgin, uh, and this, this prophecy that, that God makes for Ahaz, Ahaz will not see, right? This is uh, ultimately, in terms of what we're talking about here, the incarnation of Jesus, uh, this is actually a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself, and we'll dig into that here in more in a minute. But the second prophecy that God gives is that um, these two kings, the land of these two kings will be deserted, right? That they will, these dreaded kings will be destroyed. Uh, and that actually Ahaz does see. He does see that second, second prophecy. But before we dig into this, there's this really weird, I've always wondered, why does Ahaz not, um, uh, you know, God commands him, right? Ask of me a sign, whatever it is, right? I mean, have you ever thought about this? If God said to you, came to you and said, ask a sign, whatever it would be, what would you say? Like, what would be the sign that you would want to say? Have you guys ever thought of that? A little bit, maybe, yes. <laughs> what, what would you ask for? Like, I, I, honestly, part of me would, uh, kind of in Ahaz's place, I don't know what I'd say, right? It'd be like, 
I don't know, a sign of anything? Well, so here God God asks Ahaz to ask uh, for a sign. God tells him to ask for a sign. And he says, I, I can't. I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. And this is typically understood as a, a sense of kind of false piety on Ahaz's part. Maybe Ahaz doesn't really <laughs> believe God's going to answer, right? And so he's like, eh, you know, I'm not going to put God to the test, right? Or whatever it is. Uh, but then, of course, God gets tired of this and gives this promise of, uh, the the one the one who will come of the virgin uh, and whose name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, of course, we see Matthew pick up on this exactly this exact phrase: um, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son; his name shall be called Emmanuel. And then Matthew uh, helpfully translates this for us that Emmanuel means God with us. So once again, uh, begin, uh, keeping in mind this context from Genesis chapter three: the the seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. Continuing here now in Isaiah chapter seven. Uh, this one uh, who will come of the virgin will be God with us, God dwelling among us. As we said at the beginning, uh, God concarnate, right? God with flesh on him, uh, Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is this is kind of what's going on. Uh, Jesus uh, then finally being this fulfillment of this, this sign that God, or promise sign that God uh, asked Ahaz for, but Ahaz refused to give. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Let's continue. In Isaiah... Uh, Question three, read Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. Who is described in this passage and how does it describe the state of humiliation? What do those passages say for us? So these passages are a description of the suffering servant in Isaiah. And, uh, and this gets us to our, a bit of our understanding of Jesus' state of humiliation, his willing uh, refraining from using or his refraining from using his full divine powers uh, in order that he might um, suffer and die for mankind. So let's, uh, I'm, I don't know that I can read all of these, but let me get some of the key passages. Uh, many people are going to be familiar with these because they come up frequently um, during Holy Week especially. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Uh, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, uh, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Continuing in chapter 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And of course, it continues on. I'm sure people are very familiar with this passage. A couple of notes, actually, before we dive into these questions. One of these, uh, verse 2 of chapter 53 has always fascinated me. That it says he has had no he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, of course, this could refer to the resurrection in some sense, but I've always wondered uh, if our portrayals of Jesus as kind of this masculine, beautiful, um, what we would perceive as beautiful, you know, with rippling muscles and flowing locks of hair, are totally off base. That re- actually there was nothing in Jesus that men 
should lift him up as, you know, the next model to walk the stage of, you know, whatever, because he's so beautiful and handsome. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually he didn't have this beautiful form and, uh, and yet uh, he comes and, and is crucified for us that we might have life. So they're really fascinating little, little tidbit there, but in terms of what we're talking about now, state of humiliation, uh, this gets to the idea of whether or not um, God can suffer, right? Uh, can God suffer? Well, in fact, God cannot suffer because if if God could suffer, it implies that there's something greater than God that could change him, that could affect him in some way, right? And we, of course, know that God does not change. There's nothing greater than God, so God cannot suffer. But in order to atone for the sins of the world, he becomes man so that he can suffer and die for the sins of the world, right? In other words, he enters this state of humiliation, this uh, refraining from using his divine powers so that he can be pierced for our transgressions, so that he can actually be laid in the grave as a consequence of our sins. It is only in his humiliation that God is able to suffer and die, only in Jesus Christ in his human flesh that he is able to suffer and die uh, for the sins of the world. So uh, that's kind of what I was trying to get at there with that whole discussion of the suffering servant uh, and Jesus' work there. And we have more to to dig into. We've covered a lot of uh, Old Testament text. It looks like we're going to get into New Testament text when we return. We're studying uh, the uh, the Word of God. We're searching the scriptures in the March issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor. We have more to talk about when we come back. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the March issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. He's managing editor of The Lutheran Witness. And we are moving on to question four for searching the scriptures this month. Read Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. What does Gabriel tell Mary? How was Jesus conceived within her womb, and why is it important that Mary remain a virgin? All right, Pastor, Luke chapter 1. Now we're moving into uh, Advent and Christmas, right? (laughs) Exactly. We're getting them all. So here we're digging into this, uh, what we say in the Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary. Why is this important that she was virgin, and what does this tell us about uh, who this offspring, Jesus Christ, is. So let's dig into this. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this could be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this uh, angel, this messenger of good news comes to Mary and tells her the good news that she has found favor with God, which um, his, as with most of the appearances of angels in the scriptures, uh, is a, they first appear and typically people are afraid. This is why the first thing angels always say are, do not be afraid. <laughs> and he tells Mary, you found favor with God. You will conceive and bear in your womb a son. Uh, now, uh, how was Jesus conceived within her womb? Well, um, the angel tells her the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So this is something that is uh, conceived in her by God. What's delightful, uh, though, is you hear uh, Martin Luther believe, uh, say that he believes she actually conceived through her ear as the word was proclaimed into her ear. Uh, this is when the Holy Spirit comes to her and conceives the Holy uh, Jesus in her in her womb. So she is con- uh, the Holy Jesus is conceived as the Holy Spirit uh, is is proclaimed to her, and the power of the Most High in the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and and uh, therefore this one that is born uh, of her will be called holy. That is the Son of God. This is not born through the will of man, through the desires of mankind, not born uh, uh, through something that human has humans have done, but entirely through the gift and giving of God uh, and the Son. So he is called holy. That is, he is set apart uh, and the Son of God. Um, so that's kind of the idea there, that she she is, um, uh, uh, co- that, that God is, Jesus is conceived in her through the Holy Spirit. Should, any more on uh, question four or should we move on? We can move on from there. All right. Question five, read Hebrews 2, 10 through 15 and 4, 4 through 16. Why does Jesus take on human flesh? And then read 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And what role does Jesus now fill? Should we start with the first half of that question? Sure. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 15 and 4, 14 through 16. So we're actually going to kind of take both of these as uh, little separate texts and explain why it's important that Jesus actually come in the flesh of mankind. So Hebrews chapter two, verses 10 through 15, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Uh, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus takes on flesh that he might um, actually suffer and die for the sins of the world. And this is precisely what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. So it was fitting that 
he for whom and by whom all things exist, this is God the Father, uh, in bringing many sons to glory, it says, uh, the writer says, that is, bringing sons, that is, children of God, Christians, to glory, to salvation, uh, should do so by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here is a reference to Jesus Christ, right? So God sends Jesus Christ, uh, the founder of of, uh, our salvation. He perfects this salvation through suffering. And then, uh, and then he points out that as a consequence of this, uh, the fact that Jesus has taken on flesh, that he now calls us brothers. We are now brothers with Jesus Christ. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I mean, just reflect on this for a bit. Jesus, who is both God and man, calls you his brother, his uh, fellow child of God as a consequence of what he has done for us. You are now a brother with God himself, right? Because in Jesus, you have God and flesh, God and man together, right? And now you are brothers with with, uh, Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, And why is this? Well, we get this uh, down in verse 14 and 15, right? That he might destroy the power of death and deliver us to this lifelong slavery uh, to uh, fear of death, right? So this is uh, part of the reason why. So he can deliver us from this fear of death, but also so that he might become the one that stands between us and God, right? This is the language of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through, uh, through 15. Uh, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin, right? Let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. So he is now the great high priest who stands between us and God. And this is exactly what we get to in First chap- uh, Timothy chapter 2, that he is this mediator that stands between uh, us and God. Uh, that we might not have to fear uh, the wrath of God anymore. He has taken this wrath, and he now stands before us, advocating for us uh, as uh, as uh, God's children, as those for whom he he died, right? So if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We can look at this as two different perspectives, from two different perspectives. From our perspective, we look at God, and the only way we can see God is through Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. But then from the other perspective, when God looks at us as his children, he does not see, he sees us through Jesus right? Through the one who died for us, who advocates for us uh, in, uh, in heaven on our behalf. So that, that's the, uh, the idea here. This is the role Jesus fills as mediator, the one who stands between us and God. All right. Question six. Ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Re- All right. We're <laughs> heading to Galatians now, chapter four, verses four through six. As a result of Jesus' obedience to the law, what do Christians receive? So let's read this passage, Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So uh, as the the people of God, in, for instance, beginning actually in the Old Testament with Israel, they were born under the law. They were born uh, as a consequence of Adam and Eve's fall under the law's condemnation, right? Uh, Israel continues to fail to be obedient to God's law. So also have we failed to remain and be obedient to God's law. Uh, time and time again, we have broken and violated this. Uh, but Jesus is the one who is born under the law as well, but fulfills it perfectly for us. Uh, 
uh, we use the language here of Jesus' active obedience, that he actively obeys every bit and portion of the law. Uh, and then he gives that obedience, that active obedience to us uh, when we are adopted as sons of God. This is what we receive, adoption and therefore also his perfect life and obedience. So that when God looks at us through this mediator, Jesus Christ, he doesn't see our sins, but he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So not only did Jesus Christ atone for our sins in his death, but he gives us his perfect life and his perfect obedience. Uh, this complete and perfect obedience of the law he gives us in the waters of holy baptism so that when God sees us, he sees the obedience of his son. Uh, and this is a glorious and beautiful thing. Uh, and so uh, also as a consequence of this, we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us and cries out, prays uh, with us and cries out, uh, Abba, Father, to God, through Jesus Christ. Once again, Jesus Christ standing there as that mediator between God and man, as God and as both God and man. Mm-hmm. All right. In our last couple of minutes and our last question, we get to turn to the Athanasian Creed. Yes. In Favorite Lu- creed in the whole world. Uh, agreed. Uh, in Lutheran Service Book, that's pages 319 to 320. So mm-hmm. how does the Athanasian Creed talk about Christ's incarnation and humiliation? So we should be, uh, we, we save this creed for once a year, and we should be saying it at least quarterly. I think we should say this more frequently. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> in particular, we want to start actually with uh, the verse 27 of the creed. Uh, 20, the verses 1 through 26 talk about how we think and speak about the Trinity. But verse 27 uh, says, we also have to speak faithfully about Jesus Christ, right? And here's what we believe. I'm going to skip down a bit to verse 29. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages. And he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age, right? So he is both uh, fully God and fully man, perfect God, perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. One, however, uh, okay, and then so that that's kind of the idea of his two natures. But then it also speaks of his work on our behalf and particularly uh, his humiliation when it goes, uh, when, when he speaks in verse uh, when we confess in verse 30, 35 and 36, for as the rational soul and flesh is one in man, so God and man is one in Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended to hell, rose again on the third day from the dead. So the primary point here being uh, to say that the Apostles' Creed isn't unique in the way that it speaks about God uh, and Jesus Christ and his work uh, on our behalf in terms of his conception by the Holy Spirit, birth of the Virgin Mary. But this is actually what all of the uh, various creeds and confessions of the Christian church, uh, how they speak uh, and confess as well, even in this long one that we don't speak as uh, very often or as, as frequently as the Apostles and the Nicene Creed speak in the same way that Jesus, uh, one person, two natures, and that he became man so that he could suffer and die for our sins uh, and that we might become children of God and that we might benefit from his mediation standing between us and God uh, uh, and uh, there in heaven in the council of God. Hmm. Good stuff. Good (laughs) study. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Very insightful, and I hope that it's helpful to you, the listener, as well. We can. Uh, where can we find more on the Lutheran Witness? You should visit our website, witness.lcms.org. You can get a lot there. But then I also encourage you, if you want to subscribe to the print magazine, you can actually get a copy of this magazine in your hands. Paper magazine, beautiful thing. <laughs> uh, cph.org slash witness is the place to do that. Very good. The Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for the Lutheran Witness. Thanks for helping us search the scriptures this month. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. 
You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.